All right, so let's stand. We're going to jump right in this morning and read God's word together. We're going to jump right in. We're going to start in Luke chapter 7, verses 39 and 40. Let me read it to you. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. (laughs) And Jesus said, Simon, I have a word for you. (laughs) Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. How many of you want to hear a word from Jesus this morning? All right. Father God, speak to us. We want to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we've been talking about the art of neighboring for the last couple of weeks, and um, we've actually still got a few of these magnets. There's another church that was um, speaking from this same book um, just a month earlier, saw that we were doing this and sent us about 40 extra magnets. So if you want to grab another one, they'll be at the back. Our ushers have them, or if you haven't got one yet, um, there's some more back there. So... Maybe if you don't know what this is about, what we've been doing, what we've been talking about, um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is talk about how the little things that we do in loving make a big difference when it comes to neighboring. And so when it comes to taking the great commandment literally and seriously, and this series has been centered around this question, what if Jesus really meant it that we should love our actual neighbors? What if he really meant it? What would that look like? What would the implications of that be? And if we leaned in and if we lived that out, what could happen in our neighborhoods and our cities and even beyond? So I I shared the story about a group of pastors who had this horribly convicting moment the first uh, week in this series, sitting in a room with the city mayor down in Arvada, Colorado. They were meeting to try to figure out how to be strategic and serve their city together. And God used a guy named Bob, Mayor Bob, to say, you know what the smartest thing that you can do is as a group of pastors that are loving your community and your church is to get all those people to show up to actually care about and be in relationship with their neighbors. And so with that one statement came this huge shift for those meetings as those pastors and city leaders got together. And so this group of pastors started to meet with with some, some of the leaders. They started gathering and dreaming about what a neighboring movement could look like. And in the process, they developed a couple tools. One of them is this one right here. And I want to ask you for a show of hands again, um, how many of you in the last week, if you've been hanging out with you, you took another step. You learned a name. Go ahead and raise your hands up high in the air. Let me see that. Come on, give these guys a big, big hand. You learned a name. You took another step. Um, So the, the rest of us, Keep on doing it. It's not too late, right? It's not too late to jump in. And honestly, learning somebody's name is setting the bar pretty low. (laughs) It's a first step, right? It's a first step. Um, But if if you're unfamiliar with the block map or what this is, the idea is to simply to learn the names of these eight people around where you live. Find find the, uh, the eight people that are closest in proximity to you. Start learning their names. Fill in those blanks learn something about them, get to know them, what they're dreaming about, and become someone in their life that if, they, if they're a Jesus follower or not, you know, when they have something in their life that just kind of falls apart, they have something to grab onto, which might be you, and you're holding on to Jesus. And so this is, and I, I just want to encourage you, the reason why I just keep saying this over and over again is because I think that if we do this, if, if, if you step over that, even that really low bar of learning some names, I think it'll suck us in into a whole new way of living in our neighborhoods. I really do. 
and, and that's the best way to live. And, and so I, 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 this idea of, of, of learning a name helps you move from stranger to acquaintance, and that's a big shift for some of us. So this is, this is more than just a cute little magnet that, that we, you know, to, to put on your refrigerator. It's a tool for us to help us do what Jesus says to do. Is one of the main things to love our neighbor. And so if you haven't got one, we've got about, there's about 40 back there. You can grab an extra one. Um, let's, let's get them all out of here today, okay? So as this group of pastors started to dream with their city leaders about how best to do this, again, they, they accidentally pointed us, or these leaders, back to scripture. And they said, you know what we need? You know what we want to have in our neighborhoods? We want to have in our community a rash an outbreak of block parties. And all the destiny people are like, woo, woo. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if the Christians in our community were part of an outbreak of parties in our city? This is what the, the city leaders were telling the pastors. And then you know what they said? He said, you know, like Jesus did. What? What are, you, what are they talking about? We read throughout the New Testament, in Scripture, there's all these different encounters, and there's these stories and scenes where Jesus is sitting in the middle of these gatherings, of these parties, and of these celebrations. And oftentimes, religion will teach us that real spiritual maturity is, is getting our hearts in the game and, you know, kind of, kind of put in our... our our, our foot to the plow and you know and it, it, it's 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 that we're going to model our lives to look more like Jesus right and and so we we go and what do we do you know we put on the what would Jesus do bracelets right we're, when was that back in the 90s and which seems really trite it seems really trite but when you begin to boil the spiritual maturity down to the end game it's really about orientating our lives around Jesus isn't it and our lives begin to start looking more and more like his. And so as we do that, I've got a question for us to think about that I think is really important. If we're going to be serious about following Jesus and about modeling our life after him, maybe we should be asking this question. And, and I, it's provocative, but I want to ask it. When's the last time we made religious people uncomfortable because of the people we hang out with? When, when, yeah, let's say that one again. <laughs> When's the last time that we made people uncomfortable because of the people we have? Because here's the thing. Jesus did this all the time. He did it all the time. Jesus was constantly putting himself in environments or around these people. And all the religious leaders are like, hmm, I've got a check in my heart about that, right? <laughs> this seems pretty sketch. But are we wanting to be like Jesus or not? Because what he models for us is that we as believers should be in the mix. <laughs> we should be in the hood, if you want to say it that way. <laughs> We've got to be good news in the hood. And so in other words, we're not supposed to be sitting up on the sidelines in our homes watching the Bach party happen. Ten houses away going, well, I don't know about those people. Oh, I think I see a beer. Oh, 
Now, I've, I've been in youth ministry for 18 years of my life, and I've had lots and lots and lots of discussions about being in the world and not of it. The encouragement here does not mean you have to jump in and do the exact same things that they're doing, right? But it's clear Jesus wants us to be present and in people's lives. So I, I grew up in the church, and so in, in junior and senior high, I had all these wonderful people pouring into me saying things like, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I've said that so many times to my own kids, right? And especially when you're younger, there's a lot of truth there to mine. And so these leaders are saying all the right things, you know, things like, listen, you know, be careful with who your inner circle is, who you surround yourself with. And at that season of your life, it's critical because, you know, it's going to impact and influence who you become. And I'm so glad that I had people saying that to me, especially at that point in my life. But here's the thing. When I carry that into my adulthood and into my faith and begin to look around at the totality of Scripture, in order to be in the world but not of it, I've actually got to be in it at some point. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I've actually got to be it. So again, Jesus was over and over and over again. We see him in the middle of a party with these people who live in such a way that it made the religious people around uncomfortable. It's like they were worried about Jesus walk with God or something. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it's like they're looking on the sidelines going, Jesus, you know, oh, they're playing secular music. Shield your ears. <laughs> They're concerned about Jesus' salvation. And Jesus is sitting there sharing a meal with sinners, with prostitutes. Now hear me. As a Jesus follower, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we're facing stumbling blocks, something that's going to cause us to stumble, addictions that we're trying to get away from, you know, temptations that we know we shouldn't be around. But there is a time for the majority of us in this room that are Christ followers, that we should be in the mix. Remember, God placed us in our neighborhoods for a reason. Yes. That believers should be a part of the best parties in our city. And, you know, we need to be a part of what's happening in our communities and, and what's happening in our neighborhoods. So today we're going to look at one of those times and one of those stories in which Jesus finds himself in the middle of a gathering with some people that made others uncomfortable. So let's read from Luke chapter 7. It's an incredible story. There's a number of takeaways here that we can look at, but I'm going to be looking at it today. We're going to be looking at it today through the lens of this neighboring idea, okay? So here's what happens. Jesus gets invited to come over to this gathering at basically what is a pastor's house. And so there's this religious leader, and he's intrigued by, by Jesus, but we learn that he is also very, very skeptical. So he invites Jesus into this banquet and this gathering at his home. And let's pick it up in verse 37. You can read along on your screen or in your Bibles. It says, in the neighborhood, there is an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. And when she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair, and over and over she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. Now, banquets 
at this point in time, often had a very public feel to them. They were held in the courtyards of the host's home, and this was so that people could walk by on the outside and somebody who maybe wasn't invited could just easily wander in. And so we're, we're, we're told about this woman who is known as a prostitute. At some point before this encounter, maybe it was even that day, she had heard Jesus talk and teach, and something about him, something about what Jesus said overwhelmed her. It, it struck her. It resonated inside of her. So she's overwhelmed with love. And then she, she sees him that night sitting in this banquet, in this block party. <laughs> and she has a thought. I could go in there. I could go over. And then, you know, she has this idea. I'm going to kiss his feet. I'm going to worship him with everything that I have. To wash someone's feet was a sign of respect. It was an act of utter abandonment and adoration. So you have to put yourself in this moment. You have to put yourself there. This, this woman, she walks into this party. And as she goes through this courtyard to the table where Jesus and Simon are sitting with everybody watching, she kneels down at Jesus' feet to kiss them. Now, Jesus' feet that were unwashed by the host, Simon, as we'll later learn, and now drenched with the woman's tears. And then she begins to dry them off with her hair. And as we read on, she's got this alabaster jar of ointment. And because of her profession, we can guess that this little jar is probably one of the most valuable things that she owns. She empties the whole thing out. She pours out her life. She pours out everything. She can't anoint his head in her mind because in, in her mind, this is a holy man and she's a sinful person. And so she goes and she pulls out all of her attention, all of her love and her gratitude into this act. And Simon is there and he watches this whole thing unfold. He's the pastor, he's the religious leader, he's the one hosting the party. And what, but what we learn about Simon is that he really didn't see what was happening. Let's look at verse 39. It says, when Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman that is. So Simon watches all of this and he thinks to himself, if Jesus was the real deal, if he was a prophet, he would know that, he would know what this lady is really like. That's what he's thinking to himself. And he would never let her do this, especially in public. And then Jesus does something incredible. It says, it says Simon says this to himself. He's thinking this in his mind. And then Jesus responds to what Simon is thinking. How much would that freak you out <laughs> if you're Simon? He responds to what Simon is thinking, and he tells Simon a story. He says, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, or the equivalent of a day's wage. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 
So today, Jesus' parable probably sounds something like this. There are two people who are struggling with debt. One of them is following behind on his cell phone bill. Right? He made a couple of purchases, and now he owes a few thousand dollars on his bank card. Then there's this other person. This other person suffered from a lot of misfortune, some poor decisions of his own, and over a long period of time, he maxes out several credit cards. He defaults on his car loan, his house is being foreclosed on, and he owes the bank over $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. He's desperate, he's depressed, and he thinks there's no way out. But then the president of the bank calls, and he says to both of them, your debt is canceled. So Jesus says, Simon, which one is going to have their world turned upside down? Which one is going to be filled with relief and with gratitude and with joy and seized with love for this person who canceled the debt? Who's going to be changed the most? Simon, is it the little debt guy? Or is it the big debt guy whose response is the greatest? Simon says, well, I suppose it's the one who had the bigger debt canceled. It's almost, it's like he doesn't even want to say it because he knows where Jesus is leading him. And Jesus says, you're right, get a gold star, good job. (laughs) Right? Now, up until this point in the conversation, it was just between Jesus and Simon, but then Jesus turns towards this woman and looking at her, he says to Simon this critical phrase. He says, Simon, don't you see this woman kneeling here? Simon hadn't seen her. He saw somebody who was way beneath him. He saw somebody he'd rather not have in his world. Somebody that didn't matter to him, to his society, maybe even to his God. The way he had built his theology, Simon really didn't see her. So Jesus says, Simon, she is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off of my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with a customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all of her many sins. This is why she has shown me such an extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Simon, do you see this woman? Simon, do you see? And I think this one phrase from this one moment that Jesus has with Simon is the one that we all need to be wrestling with. Do do we see what's really going on around us? Are we really present? The opportunities to the moments, to the sacred divine moments that become available when we're just present and in the moment. We need to be learning how to really see people and and we need to strive to keep our eyes open in every sphere of life, including our neighbors. So there's so many people that live all around us and for many of us, we're failing to see what's really happening. 
we have a filter, like Simon, that allows us to disengage. And we miss it. And there's a number of reasons that we can fail to see what's going on around us, to fail to really see, see people. It's so easy to get caught up in our own world and all the different things that we have going on. Sometimes I think we unconsciously label people that we see. You know, we see that person across the street and we notice something about them or something's a little bit off that they do and then we make this jump in our mind and we put a label on them and we detach and we close the garage door and we disappear. And I think one of the reasons that we do this is because of fear. Last week we talked about Maybe the number one reason we are disengaged, the time factor, we're a culture of, of busyness. This week, I want to give you a second reason. I want to talk about fear. In the world that we live in, we have access to so many different stories. And if you watch the news streams, it's like they exist to find the worst one, right? The story that illustrates the most brokenness, the depravity of of human beings at the deepest level. They grab these stories and then they play them over and over. And I have, I have this neighboring app that alerts me not only to criminal activity or police activity in my neighborhood, but the neighboring hoods. And we have digital camera doorbells so that when somebody's package gets stolen off their front porch, we can all take a look at the guy that did it. Right? We have so much awareness and that actually does something to us subconsciously. It causes us to begin to think the worst about the unknown. And it causes us to look at people in a different way. Deanna and I lived in a little town, I mentioned it recently, a little town of Buxton, a community of about 300 people, and it was like going back 100 years, where you didn't worry about your kid riding the bike to the other side of town because everybody knew everybody. And, and, and now in the culture that we have, that would be considered child endangerment, right? And I'll tell you where the legitimate fear in this whole neighboring thing is. It can be scary because these people, here's the reason, these people are there all the time. <laughs> you know, you're going to go to work and then you'll come back. They're there. Hello, neighbor. You know, you go to do something with your kids and then you come back home and your neighbors are there watching. And there's the scary part about neighboring guys. In some ways, it's easier to get on a plane and go somewhere for a week or 10 days and then be able to come back because you get to come back. And it's, and it's easier to go down to the rescue mission and dole out soup to people who are chronically homeless because you drive away from there. But when you're neighboring, those people are always going to be there every single day. And I think that's one of the reasons why God says this, to lean into this. These people know what you're like, even if they're watch, just watching from a distance right now, even if they don't know your name. My neighbor knows when I lose my temper and I scream at my kids. <laughs> I can't go and just put on my, I'm a super Christian here to serve the masses, you know. When I'm living this stuff out on my block, because they see me. And I think that what God wants to do is to challenge us to think about the labels, to think about the assumptions that we make, about even the reasons why we're scared. Every day we make choices about whether or not we're going to take the time to dig deeper with the people that are all around us. 
We have encounters with others that every day could go one way or the other. This neighboring thing, what we said last week, is that we live at a crazy pace and we need to become a little bit more interruptible. This week, let's be willing to confront some of the labels and the assumptions that we make about people that are living right here. If we fail to do this, we're gonna miss out on some huge God opportunities. God placed you there. You're gonna miss out on living the kind of life that Jesus had in store for you when he placed you there. All throughout the scriptures, over and over again, we hear this message. If you only do one thing, love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's so tempting to look at that and go, well, well, I want to, but, you know, let's define neighbor in whatever way is easiest for us to live this out. And then it becomes a metaphor. And then I, rather than us living it, actually living it out, it becomes a metaphor. I'm loving my neighbor. But there's such incredible value in putting a circle around the place that I live. (laughs) And just kind of stamping it out and said, I'm going to begin here and then I'm going to work out Jesus lead the way. I'm going to love my neighbors. But I'm going to be intentional about this. And I think there's a reason why we read this over and over again in this text. God is saying to us, he is saying to us, hey, if you only do one thing, (laughs) just do this. Paul's even more radical. You ever notice this when he says it to the Galatians? Look at this scripture. It says, for love completes the laws of God. All of the law can be summarized in one grand statement. What is it? Demonstrate love to your neighbor, even as you care for yourself, right? So foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. And I think it's because when you do this, when we do this, when we do this well, Everything falls into place. Jesus was a pretty smart guy. (laughs) It's Jesus' idea. This is his plan. The one thing he keeps on bringing up over and over. This is his plan. This is his purpose for us. If you do this well, part of the genius of it is that it will change everything around you. It will begin to change the neighborhood. It has the potential to change the people who live around you. But here's another thing that it's going to do. It's going to change you. It's going to change us. It's actually this this amazing discipleship tool when when we begin to put ourselves in relationship geographically. As we read the first week, God placed you in your neighborhood. Remember that scripture? God placed you there. And you have the opportunity to build relationship and create a new family. And guess what? With family, sometimes relationships can be hard. There's always Uncle Bob, right? He's doing that weird thing over there in the corner. (laughs) But also, the things that change and shape us the most can be hard sometimes. This neighboring thing for some of you could be one of the hardest things you've ever done. Some of you, it's... It's a, you have a gifting. You have a gift. You, you're an evangelist. It's in you. It's in your blood. Some of us, it's scary. For most of us, it's a little messy. But I, wanted, I want you to give it a shot because you were created for this. And once you do, 
You'll never want to go back. If you just lean in a little bit, you'll experience God's best for you. I want to tell you a story just to kind of wrap this thing up. One of, one of my favorite stories, this is from the book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. It's a good, good, good book. It's been around a long time. Tony Campolo wrote this, and he tells a experience uh, uh, that he had late one night after traveling to Hawaii to speak at this conference. Um, I'm going to just read it to you, okay? Tony's schedule had been messed up because of the flight over, and he found himself wide awake, and he was hungry at 3 o'clock in the morning. So here's a story. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, I took a seat on one of the stools at the counter, and I waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing that something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place that I could find. A large guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I said, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. He pours a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then he grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. Now, I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out in front of me where I could see it, I really would have appreciated if he had used a pair of tongs and placed a donut on some wax paper. As I sat there, munching on my dirty donut, and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud, and it was crude. I felt completely out of place, and I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the, overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake or something, sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should anybody give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and I waited until the woman had left, and then I called over the big guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. She comes in here every night. What do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say that you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, and they want us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiling. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, 
I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and we'll decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. <laughs> I'll make the cake. Great. <laughs> at 2.30, the next morning, I was back at the diner. And I'd picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other, and I had that diner looking great. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes with her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, and so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and as she led her to sit in one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And as we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake came with all the candles on it and it was carried out, she lost it, and she just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. <laughs> Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. <laughs> and after a few endless seconds, he did. <laughs> then he handed her a knife, and he told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off of it, she softly and she slowly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep this cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right now? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she asked. And she looked at me and she said, I, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back. She got off the stool and she picked up the cake and carried it like it was the holy grail. Walked slowly towards the door and we all just kind of stood there, motionless, as she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and he said, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came to me, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. 
Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for the down and outers at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. So there's some people who live right next to you and maybe they're lonely and they're isolated and they're so busy and they're just skimming in the surface of life and maybe they have a spiritual curiosity that's just aching inside of them. And God puts you right beside them for a reason. If just this community, if just this church decided that we're going to go out to this community and we're going to take Jesus' brilliant plan to love our neighbors for real, we're going to do a lot of little things that make a big, big difference. Brent, would you come on up? So what if Destiny became known as a church that knew how to throw the best parties? And I'm not talking about the church here. I'm talking about the church when you walk out the door. What if we became known as the church that threw the best block parties? And I'm just saying, I'm throwing it out there, a little vision for us. And I'm hoping somebody's going to catch on to it and run with it. Pull out that insert. Uh, There's an insert in your bulletin. I've given you just a little handbook that the authors of The Art of Neighboring put together for us as a church to plan and organize a block party. I'm actually giving you a tool (laughs) to plan and organize a block party. Now, the best time to do this is summer, but I wanted to get it in your, your hands now to start praying about it, to start thinking about it. The cool thing is I was having a conversation this week with somebody in the office and they said, I was already dreaming about this. So take that, take it home. I just want to say it again. You know, what if if the church did what Jesus did and was in the mix in our neighborhood? We're present. Maybe even planning and hosting some parties. Our community will start to change. Your block will start to change. Your neighborhood will change. Our city will change. This church will see new faces, but it's far beyond what happens in these walls. I'm excited to see what God has in store for us, and I'm excited about the things that the people of this church are passionate about. And I'm excited to see how we're going to respond to Jesus' call to love our neighbors. I heard this this week. Our life is not an audition for the afterlife. Live your life now. Love God with everything that's in you. Love your neighbors now. I've got one more very important thing that we need to do before we close today, but I just want to pray over us. If you feel prompted to love your neighbors, regardless of fear, regardless of the fear factor, and because of Jesus' prompting, I want to invite you to just hold out your hands, just as you're seated there. Just hold out your hands like this, just as a way of surrender. Can we just pray together? Father God, I just, yeah, you can repeat after me. Father God, give me a heart for my neighbor. Give me a heart for my neighbor. With all that's in me. With all that's in me. I love you. Help me to love my neighbors like you do. In your name. name. Amen. Amen. It's that simple and it's that complex, isn't it? So help us, Jesus, to get outside of our busy culture, to be interruptible, to be present where you have us. And Lord, help us 
to move past our fears. In your mighty name. Just as we're sitting here too, we've been talking about the love of Jesus. If you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart yet, let's all pray this together. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him where he is present. He moves into our neighborhood. He makes our heart his home. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you felt a little tug, you felt like, oh, this is speaking to me. Oh, I'm, at, I'm at a place that's broken. I'm at a place where I'm hurting or I'm at a place where I need rescue. This is your morning. Let's all pray this together this morning. And Jesus, in your mighty name, I give you my life. Everything that's in me. I surrender at the foot of the cross. Thank you for dying for me and paying the price for my sins and coming to my rescue. All I am is yours. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, at the end of the service, we're going to invite our altar ministry workers to come up, and I want you to tell them.